Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the latest episode of the Telegraph Rugby Podcast with myself, Ben Coles, joined here by Charlie Morgan. Hiya, Charlie. Hi, mate. And also Charles Richardson. Hello, Charles. Bonjour. Oh, that was very nice. Um, Lots to talk about in this episode after a jam-packed weekend of Test Rugby. And we will also be taking a closer look at the attack in the modern game joined by the former England head coach, Stuart Lancaster. We will check in too with Fiona Thomas out in New Zealand to recap two excellent semi-finals after England's women reached the Rugby World Cup final and scored a belter of a try in the process. We'll also try to answer some of your questions. If you want to get in contact, please email rugbypod at telegraph.co.uk. Right, let's start with yesterday's game and the end of a 16-year wait for Argentina to win at Twickenham. A, a very, very, very weird game, I think it's fair to say. Charlie, you and I were there. It, an odd atmosphere, and I think we'll talk about that. But just in terms of takeaways from the game in general, where, where does this leave England? It was a very confusing performance. Subdued, strange. Yeah, really odd. And just kind of the most worrying thing is that there are recurring themes. So they they used up a lot of energy ahead of the 22, getting into the 22. They had a lot more possession than... I think they even anticipated. We spoke before about how they, I thought that because of the strength of, the key strength of Argentina has been that breakdown disruption, you know, soaking up pressure and then firing into breakdowns. And it was a perfect day to do that. Um, absolutely biblical rain yes. um, yeah. around the Tuckenham area f- for all but about an hour of the morning. Oh, sorry, all of, about an, all of about an hour leading up to kickoff. Then a little dry spell where we thought, you know what? Maybe, maybe, and then no, and then it bucketed down again till about just before half time. Some of us took sunglasses, I should add, for what was at one point. And then really smugly, and then really smugly asked if I had mine, which I didn't. Well, I just um, wanted to make sure that your eyes were okay. Sorry. I think I think partly why it was quite odd was that England were in front of a full crowd at Twickenham, who are the narrative of them improving their attack. Everybody sort of was on board with that, but it wasn't the right sort of first half to do that I think they could have been more boring I think they could have they only kicked I think 24 times in the game and I think that was actually the answer for New Zealand when they lost to Argentina the next week they kicked really cutely and they worked off counter-attack they played with scraps and they were just more accurate in, in, in transition which is what England don't have at the minute and yeah so recurring themes and another recurring theme which maybe we'll get onto later is just that lack of cohesion in the first game of campaigns which is just so strange because it almost seems to me like it's becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy because Jones talks about it a lot he talks about the theories sort of, of of Ben Darwin a lot whereby you need players who are either familiar with each other or have spent time together and he seems to sort of speak about them so that now what the, it was just bizarre hearing Alice Gange talk about it at, at, at the end of the game saying oh, it's difficult being English because you go into a game and you've you know from all these different clubs and then you've got to kind of find that familiarity again but then he sort of caught himself and he said I suppose Argentina have done that a little bit actually yeah, so yeah, no did. excuses we, we'll hear a bit from Gange in a sec I, I reckon if we if we think about because this episode is going to be on the attack and we're going to hear from Stuart Lang, Lancaster if we if we just focus on Thinking about Marcus Smith and, and Owen Farrell and Manu Tuilagi and that combination that 
England supporters and followers have wanted to see together for a very long time. Charles, it, we know it's going to need time and, and because they haven't had a lot of time together and they only had a few training sessions together, but it didn't seem very, didn't seem very natural, did it? No, it didn't. And we, we barely saw, barely saw Manu ball in hand. I don't think I can, you know, I think you can count on one, maybe two hands the amount of times he touched the ball. Yeah, he um, definitely didn't make a lot of ground when he did either. No, no, absolutely not. Well. And, and which is surprising considering Eddie Jones had teed up this team with, 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 with the selections of, of, of Thokana Singer, of Twalangi and, and, and Noel and, and Billy Vunapola to be, to be direct. You know, there was, there was a real sort of direct feel. And I thought yesterday England were at their best when they were their most direct. You know, the, the, the stylish, the stylish cuter, cuter aspects of their game is, is all well and good and it, and it, and it looks attractive but actually, there is still a case, even even at the top level, of just putting your head down and, and, and making some yards. And actually, the most fluid that England looked were when they did that, especially with the conditions. You know, when you had Sinclair, obviously he has lovely, lovely soft hands, the daintiest of hands for a prop. But when he put his head down and, and sort of blasted a hole, England got motoring. They got on the front foot. You know, Van Portfleet's try came from good front foot possession and sometimes... And, con- and conviction. Yeah, that's, quite. That, I just thought that that's what he added when he came on and we actually, we had teed this up the last week, last week's podcast when we where all of us kind of picked Jam- Jack Van Portfleet to start at nine, didn't we? I think overriding strength of his is utter conviction and that's what made you just not worried at all about his emergence in Australia as a scrum half because he just exudes that self-belief and that I mean, as far as sporting symbolism, symbolism goes, Ben Youngs was mixed. He had some good, he had some good moments kind mm-hmm. of watching, watching the tape back. But for Jack Van Portfleet to arrive and then inject that conviction and that pace straight away and just taking that gap when it's, it's um, Gonzalez, I think, who just doubles under the ruck and he just sees that. He's spoken about improving his scanning of rucks before and he just takes that gap and it's brilliant. That's what England kind of miss when they get across that 22 is, is real conviction. Um, and he brought it straight away. Just to yeah. go back to, to Smith Farrell too laggy, do we think long term this is going to work? And I appreciate it's a very small sample size, and England had a lot of issues yesterday. Can you get Smith and Farrell in that midfield together? I think. Th- I think it's an interesting option to have during a game. Um, and I think yesterday showed enough of that, actually. So. Really nice strike move, 50 minutes, written down the sort of the brighter spots of, of what England didn't attack. And in the 50th minute, first phase shape, Farrell at first receiver, starts with Thokken Singer on his left and Manu Tulagi cutting a really hard line on his right with Marcus Smith out the back. Thokken Singer fades around Farrell to arrive on his right and that obviously with, with a lot of attention on Tulagi, that gives um, Thokken Singer a one-on-one and he brushes off Matera, a huge line break. That's one of the sort of the brighter spots. Then, ironically enough, the Pumas kind of regroup, absorb the pressure, and it's from that that Santiago Carreras' interception try comes because England have been pushed so far back from that initially promising start. Um, if you think about Farrell and Smith, so they've come, they come into this kind of England side having operated with really balanced back lines in the Premiership. So Marcus Smith has got Esther Hazen, he's got one of Marchant or Northmore. Um, as his centre, as his centres at Harlequins, um, Farrell has got Nick Tompkins, one of the most underrated players probably in Europe, as an inside centre at Harlequins. It was a rare, sorry, bright Saracens. spot for Wales actually against yeah, New Zealand. Yeah, lovely, lovely pullback for Ria Dyer's try was a try, wasn't it? And then Alex Lazowski is um, is. Um, is um, Farrell's second uh, centre at Saracens and he's got that pace of Elliot Daly as a second receiver and he's got Alex Goode's kind of intuition out wide with Max Malins buzzing around as well. Um, when they are forced together in the same back line, it's almost as if you're plucking Manu Tuilagi and goes, right, to have those two, to have Smith and Farrell on the pitch together, we need Manu Tuilagi at his absolute best mm. at his... Um, 2012 December absolutely destroying New Zealand form that hasn't been around for a while although he kind of found found a little bit of that at the 2019 World Cup so effectively what you need with with Farrell and Smith the theory works is what I'm trying to say Mm. the theory sounds good on paper and you would want maybe that to be a fallback during a game Um, and that is why we're seeing it so much is, is to get that familiarity so that it can during the World Cup become become this option for England but this is the whole problem with England at the minute is Jones that has this mandate to work towards 2023 and in the here and now you're reaching for something that isn't there and is sort of 
a bit of a, a mythical thing. Mm, because I suppose the question has to be asked whether Manu Tuolangi will, by 2023, be the player that Eddie Jones wants him to be. Because at the minute, is 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 Eddie picking Manu based on some on kind reputation. of yes, on some past perception that he had, and because of his past importance to this England side, um, is he still that player? I mean, that that that's the key question here as to whether Farrell Smith sorry, Smith Farrell Twalangi will work. I think the question is, does Manu still have the same gravitas? And, and ability as he did as you said in 2012 and is because I don't think at club level he has frankly this season it's quite been quiet for sale yeah. really really quiet for really sale. Quiet. it's going to be terrible if thing, I mean the whole vibe for years has been oh if we can just get Manu fit everything will be fine mm. and if he is now fit it's not going to be fine then that does that does make you think oh well the World, Cup, a lot of the World Cup is very close and you've sort of been waiting for this for a while because he's he's been plagued by injuries lots um, but whenever he's come back whenever he's been picked again he has looked to the man born when he's been back at international level he's looked to the man born to the man born yeah. very good uh, he's looked very dangerous he's looked very dangerous and he's shown at least sparks of his potential he would come on he'd fend someone at 13 or he'd, he'd, he'd obliterate someone in the tackle. I mean, I know he put a big shot in yesterday, but ball in hand, he was very, very quiet. And I think, I don't think Moroni was particularly troubled by him at all uh, in that outside centre channel yesterday. We're going to hear a bit of audio now. I spoke to Ellis Genge in the mix zone after the game and got his take on how, uh, where he felt England had sort of gone wrong and lost a grip on a contest at, in that second half in particular. I think it's more so disappointment of just the individual errors that we made. I think actually in terms of game plan, we were almost bang on. Um, then we just kept feeding them and they're not the team that they once were. They're going to capitalise on those mistakes. And I think that's what we've seen today. Conditions not great in the first half. Do you feel like you got on top of it this Well, weirdly, yeah, the set piece I was really happy with. Um, obviously, until the end, um, two penalties went again. So that's, I mean, yeah, let's not talk about that too much. So obviously, I disagree with... I thought we were dominant, should I say. Um, But I don't think that's the be-all and end-all. You think like one error during a game doesn't necessarily define the team. I think it's like a collaboration of that, you know, like we just kept doing the same things. They kick off, we'd be offside, three points. We'd score three points. They'd score three points. they score a try. We'd score a try. And at the end, you see how tight it was and then the errors count. But if you don't do the other ones, then you ain't got to worry about them, have you? So I think that's where we were at. It was like a game of table tennis, wasn't it? They've they score, them. we score, they score, we score. Yeah. Just, uh, sorry, they touched on the penalty count upstairs. That second half discipline, did you feel like that was sort of getting away from It was just frustrating, wasn't it? And like, we, we didn't... It's a reflection of leadership, really. We, we obviously thought we were getting the message across and we need to work on, on that and we'll take that on the chin. So we need to be better in that area. That was Ellis Gen speaking after the game yesterday. Uh, one quote that I really want to focus on he said he was sort of talking about the game plan as if it all went well and, and as if England sort of, the plan was correct, but it was individual mistakes which really let them down. I find that quite interesting because if that is the plan being adhered to correctly, then the outcome isn't particularly inspiring, is it, Charlie? Yeah, yeah, tough question. There's some, bit, some <laughs> bits of that team performance. There are some bits of that team performance that you can't, cater for I think so Luke Cowan Dickey steaming in and, mm. and, and an early tackle that gives Buffelli another kick um, Carl Sinclair lying all over the ball while Cowan Dickey um, competes and giving another six points straight away Alex Coles dropping a kick off unfortunately gives another three points away I, my piece from the from the game was that Argentina are a magnificent side and they are I think they're about a six out of ten yesterday mm. and that's all they had to and be I agree. To that's all they had to be to beat England, which is the kind of galling thing for England supporters. Yeah, it wasn't like when they beat New Zealand earlier this year, where it was literally like everyone beat. It wasn't, yeah. yeah, yeah, it wasn't. And um, so I, I get what he's talking about, and I get that. Actually, and I actually think that you know, a ten-point win over Argentina, which is what without a few of those mistakes that could have been, would have been a perfectly acceptable way to start start the autumn, notwithstanding some of the, some of the really weird errors. Um, it's just that when those errors come in, I think, and almost that quote belies it from, from Genge, is that almost there's this real, how wedded the players are to this plan, mm. um, kind of leaves them in a bit of a cul-de-sac. 
yeah. in games. Yeah, because the penalty count was, I mean, it's ten, it, ten penalties. It's ten all. You'd wasn't be, it? you'd be delighted with that. Yeah, Eddie Jones would have bitten your hand off before. It just felt the game. way worse than that, didn't it? Because of wearing them, were giving away penalties, and, away. and the fact that Buffelli was was red hot. And yeah, sort of how avoidable up. they all were. Yeah, as well. Yeah, exactly. You know, just um, the silliness of them. We we all <laughs> to toot our own trumpet. Someone also said Argentina might win last week. So congratulations that? to me. Okay. Uh, with the scrum half, we all wanted JVP last week. I, it has to happen now, doesn't it? Yeah, I thought I thought Youngs was was fine yesterday. Occasionally, the passing to touch aside, occasionally good, but Lovely, England were different, yeah, weren't they? Lovely chip to actually set up fucking a singer's mm. try um, for yeah. Smith to chase. Nice, nice awareness and good touch on that. Um, the passing to touch was really poor because that's actually down on my list as the kind of one of the moments that England showed a bit of um, bit of intuition off first phase and were quite incisive and then it kind of Young's bounces back against the grain doesn't pick up a forward runner it goes in such looks awful loses momentum mm-hmm. Argentina actually box kick downfield Montoya gets a turnover it's all of a sudden it's 10-9 and England have no um, nothing to show at all for a slightly promising Spell I, as as we all said, we just started Jack Van Portfleet last week, and it was a weird selection because actually, even though Van Portfleet had been um, on the bench for the last test in Australia, he came on and was a really important part of that of that win. And I just don't see any glaring. And it's, again, this sounds crazy, Charles, but in in a twenty one year old, it's crazy to say. But there are he's such a rounded player. Mm. He's proactive. He's tough in defence as well. Um, he's great kicker. And as we say, he's he's got an eye for a gap, and he's combative, and his skill is sharp. Service. Yeah. It felt like if, I mean, it felt like he had the shirt, as as you alluded to. It really did feel like he had the shirt, and you know, he's he's him and Ben Youngs, even at club level, are having a really good battle. And, and you have to say that full a full Leicester side, Jack Van Portfleet will probably keep Ben Youngs out of the team, um, and deservedly so. I mean, we all said that he should start, and that we'd have. Probably Rafi Quirk on the bench, coming off and exploding at sort of 55, 60 minutes, which says a lot for what we think about sort of Ben Youngs at the minute, an absolutely fantastic player and a, and, a, and a fantastic servant for English rugby, but it does seem as if there are two better, younger nines at the minute. England's women are into the World Cup final. Simon Middleton's side saw off Canada 26-19 in Auckland to tee up a clash with hosts New Zealand in the final, the same side who beat them in the final five years ago. Let's check in now with Fiona Thomas, who joins us from Auckland. It looked like an amazing kind of, kind of atmosphere for the semi-finals. Can you give us a bit of an insight into what it's been like? I think everyone had sort of written off Canada at the start um, in terms of, you know, would England just, you know, put 20, 25 points on them despite it being a semi-final? But my word, did they come out to play? A really stunning sort of long-range try from England in that game. Great to see that sort of going viral as well. What, what was sort of the, the atmosphere for when that happened? When Abby Dow kind of, she blitzed, what, 60 metres down, down the pitch. It was a it was a brilliantly worked try. You kind of sense at that point that they had sort of had it in the bag, even though, you know, Canada still came back at them in that, in that final third. But England aren't renowned for running the ball out of their own 22. They're blessed with world-class kickers in that backfield and yeah to see uh, Claudia McDonald literally dance out dance her way out of the 22 before shipping it to Dow who literally blitzed over I think the last time I um, checked England Rugby's Instagram uh, post on that it was pushing 50,000 views which was more than anything that the you know the kind of highlights reels from the 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 England Argentina game and the men's had got so that just kind of shows the sort of interest that is swirling around this Red Roses side at, at the moment yeah absolutely in in terms of uh, how well England have played and, and and how they're sort of building up for the final do you do you expect them to change anything in their approach would you make any changes to the selection and what kind of injuries are we sort of waiting to hear about as well so we're still waiting to hear um, an update on. Uh, well, we think Helena Rowland's going to be out. To be to be honest, she she kind of emerged on on crutches after the game, which didn't look good. Um, we're still waiting for another injury update on Hannah Bottomham, who um, was kind of ruled out from that Canada clash at the very last minute. Although I did see her also strapped in a boot, but apparently they all go into boots whenever there's a slight injury niggle, slight lower limb injury as a, as a bit of a precaution. So. Um, I think it's likely that Ellie Kildun is obviously going to f- fill that kind of fullback role now that Roland is out, which 
should provide a bit of an interesting dynamic because I would have started Roland, frankly, had she been fit. In terms of the final itself, we've sort of got like, you know, boring England against exciting New Zealand, two very different brands of rugby. Um, and it'll be amazing to see whether England can, will stick to their sort of structured game, stick to their kind of line out more, which has become their kind of bread and butter of this tournament, or whether New Zealand can really match them at the set piece and really kind of get stuck into them. So, yeah, it's going to be it's going to be so exciting. Can't wait. Fiona, would you make any unforced changes for the final? Just thinking about the impact that Poppy Cleal and Kabea had off the bench, just sort of shaking that up and giving a, giving them a bit of energy when they needed it, because Canada would had them on the ropes I thought it was interesting wasn't it to see uh, Simon Middleton take off his captain Sarah Hunter um, and Marley Packer who, who who have both been really influential in this campaign in the I think it was the 52nd minute when when things weren't on the uh, things weren't going well frankly um, he said afterwards that the reason for taking both of them was because they were tired I mean Sarah Hunter is 37 she's not going to be around in 2025 for the next World Cup Kabea really kind of injected that sort of um, energy that they were they were lacking, you know, among the forwards. And I, I think I saw some stat that Kabea actually made more tackles than Packer did in in the kind of in the time that she was on the pitch for that for that second half, which says everything you need to know about kind of who she is and and the workhorse that that she is. In terms of changing anything for the final, I don't think he's going to make any drastic changes, to be honest. He's going to, you know, he's been pretty consistent without his selection so far and, you know, stick to what you know. I think he's he's not going to kind of bring any major changes, if you like, for, for that big one on Saturday night. Will New Zealand look at how Canada attacked, which was ambitious, I thought. The ball movement was ambitious. They pushed those passes, got into the wide channels. Will they look at that, and they mix it up with loads of pick and goes through the middle, will they look at that variety and that ambition from Canada and think that they can match it and sort of um, and, and hurt England that way? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, the, the thing that concerned me about watching England on Saturday, which I haven't really ever been concerned about ever because they've won the last 30 games they've played. It's how easily they were kind of caught off guard, how easily sort of Canada sort of sliced through them. Um, they kind of became very tight in places. Um, and they were certainly kind of, they, they, they left the wings a bit, to, a bit too kind of open, if you like. So, you know, we, we know the kind of free-flowing, fast, fiery, quick offloading game that the Black Ferns love to play. So if anything, you know, they're going to be sort of, you know, they'll be doing their analysis, I'm sure, on that Canada game and sort of licking their lips, perhaps, you know. I think as well, just the wider context of this final, like England have never beaten New Zealand in a World Cup final, which is kind of, you know, this is new territory for them. They're going in with the weight of the world on their shoulders. Some of those girls have never lost in a white shirt. Like, this is how ridiculous with, you know, the situation is. Like, they, they literally do not know what it feels like to lose. Um, so it's kind of, you know, it's do or die time for the Red Roses this weekend. And, you know, as we saw in that France-New Zealand game with that Carolyn Duran uh, last uh, gasp kick, pressure can do funny things. Oh, that's brutal. And, you know, this is the biggest psychological test some of these some of these players will have faced, if not will face, I think, in their careers. So, yeah, it's uh, squeaky bum time. <laughs> Fiona, Fiona, you've touched on um, you've touched on Claudia McDonald already, and I just quick word quick word on her because she was the catalyst to that to that fantastic Abidal try last weekend, and obviously a lovely step off the left foot, and then a gorgeous a, a gorgeous sort of long range pass out to out to Abidal on the wing. Obviously, she's transitioned from scrum half to wing at international how have you seen her progression um claudia and 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 how impressed are you by how she's sort of adapted to a completely new position part of the reason why she she made that world cup squad was because mids was going to use her as a sort of hybrid scrum half scrum half winger um she hasn't played scrum half throughout the campaign and if 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 she does feature at the weekend i certainly don't think it will be at scrum half i think that kind of ship has sailed um, Leanne Infante is obviously going to start in that position with Lucy Packer perhaps coming off the bench. Yeah, she's been extraordinary. And to have that vision that she had to kind of find Dow, you know, her ex-Wasps teammate, to, to kind of make that try, you know, obviously Dow got the got all the, the praise and, and the limelight. But yeah, Claudia's been immense to come back from that career-threatening neck injury as well that she did mm. earlier this year. After, <laughs> I might add, after she had her um, her, her England contract cut, because she was an injured player, there aren't enough to go around, so she had to give it up. 
and the resilience that that she has shown just just phenomenal Fiona just to wrap up let's get a prediction from you will England win it okay so the atmosphere at Eden Park I think is going to be absolutely vicious and it's whether they can kind of be composed enough I think they will I think they can bring it home I think they can go and make history I'm back in the red roses love to hear it Fiona get some sleep thanks so much for your work Okay, next we're going to hear from Stuart Lancaster, the Leinster assistant coach and former England head coach, to get his views on the attacking game. Uh, When looking up stuff about how well he's done at Leinster, they've obviously won a lot of trophies. There was a really interesting quote from Robbie Henshaw, the Ireland centre, who said about Lancaster, he came in and took this club by the scruff of the neck and shook it up. I I found that really interesting because Leinster, before Lancaster, they hadn't won a trophy for a couple of years, but... They had won lots sort of in the previous years between 2012-2014. Lancaster's come in. They've won the Champions Cup in, in Bilbao. They've reached two more finals. They've won four United Rugby Championship titles as well. Charles, uh, that's quite impressive, isn't it, that he's gone to a side like that and you've got players of Henshaw's calibre talking about what a job he's done there. Yeah, I, I don't think Stuart Lancaster's coaching um, calibre was ever in doubt. You know, I, I don't think... It, he was he was comp- he was completely deserving of that of that England role when, when he got it at the time. And but the way obviously things happened, he got things wrong on on, on the biggest stage. Uh, and the, but the way in which he's reinvented himself now in terms of how he's gone to Le- Leinster, how he has refocused and re-energized himself through doing what he does best, the coaching on the field. Is is very impressive, and obviously he's off to Racing ninety two next season in Paris, where he's got a because he wants a new challenge, and he's he's clearly someone with with tremendous drive and with tr- a tremendous rugby nous, and the way in which, as I said, he is sort of continuing, continuing to prove his worth at, at the top level of rugby is 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 phenomenally impressive. The, the amount of um, grey hair emerging from myself and Charlie will tell you that we were around in twenty fifteen for for when it all went wrong. And, and it obviously did go very wrong. Charlie, what are your memories of of that time? And I, I can remember being in that... I, I wrote about this recently when writing about Chris Robshaw's retirement. I remember being in that Robshaw-Lancaster press conference after Wales, and it was just... It was awful. <laughs> there, there, there's no... It was just horrendous. I mean, how do you sort of look back on that time now and, and his time with England? Well, um, I remember how amazing that atmosphere was for that mm. way, for that Wales game. The, the talk sort of before was how many Wales fans had come over for it. A lot, and they, yeah. Well, it was fairly quiet, fairly quiet to the beginning, and then that's just swelled and swelled and swelled. And at the end, it was phenomenal. I would say one of the best atmosphere I think I've ever been been at or experienced at a game. Um, I would say the way England played, almost trying to cover too many bases, which is maybe a little bit of a warning for them now. They didn't really know. Who they were, what, what, how they were trying to attack, what their best side was. Um, so that's, you know, that's what can happen if you go into the World Cup without an absolutely definitive identity. Um, I think Charles was right then to, to touch on the hands-on coaching side of it. I think Stuart Lancaster, for, for whatever reason, maybe got mar- got marginalised as to because the job is just so big that England head coach role. Um, you're covering so many bases. You're you know, facing the media. I think Sri Lancaster's on on record as uh, with talking about this. Um, and again, that is a warning for whoever succeeds Eddie Jones as far as get that structure right. Get that structure right. Get really sharp, forward-thinking, progressive coaches in place, um, and see what happens. Because although they had a bit of, a, they didn't get through to silverware last season. Leinster played some fantastic stuff, um, and Ireland are reaping the benefits of it right now. He's had immense success in Ireland and now we're going to hear from Stuart Lancaster, the former England head coach, about the art of the attacking game, speaking to Charlie Morgan. At the risk of sounding like I'm wishing you Happy New Year in March, congratulations on the new role with Racing 92. Yeah, um, difficult decision, really difficult decision to leave Leinster. You know, such such a great time, such an amazing group of players to coach. A uh, great country to live in. Um, my seventh season now, and you know we've had more wins than losses, fortunately. Um, but we still feel as unfinished business as well. So um, plenty to do in the short term, definitely at Leinster, but obviously an exciting opportunity to go 
challenge myself really as a coach in a different country, um, learn the language, um, coach a different type of players and try and build the same sort of levels of consistency that we've established at Leinster, you know, in, uh, in the top 14. Could you tell us a little bit about how that decision came about? Because um, you've said consistently that you're going to take time to make the decision because you'd enjoyed your time at Leinster so much. You've delved into it a little bit there. Could you elaborate, please? Yeah, well, it's pretty, it's pretty unique, isn't it? You know, normally in sport, in any sport really, um, a coach tends to get sacked towards the end of the season or, um, or they make a decision to move a coach on and usually the, the decision is made maybe one or two months before the end of the season. Um, but Racing, and I can't really think of many other examples where this has been done, had decided more than 16 months out from um, Lauren Traverse to become the president that they want a new head coach for July 23. Um, so very proactively, they made that decision, like Lauren was going to become the president, Jackie Lauren's team was going to step down, and then they wanted a new head coach for that period. Um, and uh, so I got approached um, via a, a French agent um, who was acting on behalf of um, Racing, and that's really how it started. Um, so this was probably... June, I'd say, um, June, July. Um, and also that then gave me the, the off-season, um, in particular, um, to think about it, go and visit there, um, go on holiday and take my time over the decision. Um, and ultimately, made the decision towards the start of this season just gone. And obviously it came out of the press and told the players, you know, maybe a month ago now. We want this episode to be about attack chiefly. We'll... Um... Do you feel that style of play and attack in particular will be one of the things that you're most proud of when you finish when you finish up at Leinster? It's a bit of both, really. I mean, I would say if you ask the players when I first came in, I was probably tasked with um, improving the defence. So the the job evolved really into a into a dual coaching role, both attack and defence. So. You know, again, if you ask the players in the lead up to big games, you know, what do I focus on? It's probably defence. Um, but the the things probably hardest to coach is attack. And I think the the evolution of our attacking game, uh, our mindset to attack, our mindset to play to space, and the detail and the organisation that that takes, and the execution and the course schools to be able to do it, um, is is something I'm proud of definitely because. Um, it's not easy to do. It takes a while to really establish those habits and get the principles and the frameworks in place and then the, to layer on the decision-making and the execution on top of it. You, that's a really interesting point you make, the kind of the differentiation between coaching defence and coaching attack. What we're seeing now when you think of somebody like Andy Farrell and actually in the Premiership, Les Kiss, are guys that you would maybe think defensive-minded coaches now making a huge impact yeah. on the other side of the ball. Can you tell me about... No, when you when you're coaching both sides of the ball, how how you think and how maybe it all comes together is that is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah no, definitely because because when you are coaching defence, you're constantly thinking of um, what are the ways we're getting challenged, how are we getting compromised defensively, um, where were we weak, where are we vulnerable, where did the, where was that try conceded, why was it conceded, um, and I think. Um, uh, that's both from strike plays, you know, from your lineup, from your scrums, and your how you set up, but also in the multi-phase situations, um, in the transitions, in the counter-attacks. So when you are tasked with coaching defence, um, you then flip it on its head, and then you you begin to understand how different defensive systems are set up, and how different attacking systems can be used to break to break to break them down. You know, because every defensive system has its own nuances and every defensive system has its own vulnerabilities. Um, and it forces you, when you're coaching both sides of the ball, to think about it um, in that way. But when, you, when you look around the world, as we, as we know you do, what, what teams do you feel like are, are really in a, in a groove when it comes to what they're doing in attack? Who's, who's pushing the boundaries or who's just being so particularly accurate and effective in what they're doing? Um, I'd say... Obviously, the Crusaders would be a big one that, that I would watch in the Southern Hemisphere. Um, you know, consistent Super Rugby champions and generally have a very, very good um, play-to-space mindset, um, very good skill set, 
good at all aspects of attack, you know, whether it's close to the line, whether it's strike plays, whether it's transition turnover. Um, Toulouse, obviously, would be another who who you know, I would watch a lot of because of their capacity to to score such amazing tries in, in broken field rugby, their mindset to keep the ball alive, and the different way in which they narrow up defences as compared to, say, a Leinster would. Um, so I'm trying to um, trying to merge, you know, those those types of influences from um, the Southern Hemisphere, from the top 14, from rugby league, from my, my sort of background and learnings from from working with Andy, but also being involved at Leeds at the time, back in the day, um, watching the, the best rugby league teams, um, and then internationally, obviously, you'd still you'd still watch the top three or four teams and, and work out why why they're hard to defend. You know, New Zealand, you're watching them against Wales at the weekend, you know, scored 50 points um, in one particular way. Ireland, obviously, I'd have a lot of knowledge and, 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 and similarity in the way we do things with Leinster. Um, France, obviously, at their best. Um, everyone's got, you know, points of difference and it's about taking the best from all those teams. Saracens are playing great rugby at the moment. You know, extra involved their attack this year. Northampton have been very good. So I watch a lot of the English Premiership as well. Um, and obviously within our league, we're, we're coming up against uh, a South African defence one week, a Scottish defence another week in Edinburgh and Glasgow, Italian defences who are very well organised now, um, the Welsh, and then obviously you're going into Europe, you're playing against the English and the French. So we've got Gloucester and Racing this year. So from a coaching perspective, it's a really broad set of challenges that you face in the URC, um, which is great, really, you know, because it really tests you to keep evolving your attacking philosophy. Is there Stuart Lancaster master doc of what teams are doing around the world? Uh, there is, yeah, there is a, um, yeah, there is, there is to a point in that, you know, if you came into my team review this morning, um, you'd have sat and listened to a review of the Saracens game, uh, sorry, the Scarlets game from the weekend. Um, um, but also you'd have seen maybe five to 10 clips from other teams that I've seen recently over the weekend to bring, um, my explanation to the players of why, Ireland beat South Africa at the weekend or, you know, why Argentina scored that first phase try against England. Um, so there's lots of stuff we look at and I try and educate the players so that their knowledge of the game is strong so that when we're faced with challenges ourselves, we can um, deal with them successfully. Can you elaborate on that first phase try against um, against England? That's pretty pretty slick. Well, you must have seen it before. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm obviously, um, uh, you know, Michael Cech has done a great job, but I think people have completely missed the point that Felipe Contepomi has got in there. Um, and uh, I spent four years working with Felipe at Leinster. He's an outstanding coach. Um, and um, there's no doubt that Argentina is a serious force to be reckoned with. And Felipe is a big part. But I'm not disputing Michael Checker's influence, clearly, but... In terms of what Felipe is doing in that organisation, Juan Fernandez lobby defensively, that's a very very strong coaching team now. And uh, yeah, I've seen that play before. When you, when you're thinking about what move to kind of unfurl of a weekend, and you're thinking about, I guess, a menu of what you'd run off a set piece. How much are you thinking of an opponent's traits or weaknesses um, as to as to what you'll use? In that case, for instance, yeah. So, so in any coaching team, you've got people who've got different um, roles and responsibilities. So, my my role is not necessarily on the strike plays. So, Andrew Goodman, again, we talk about the the diversity of information used in a club like Leinster. So, Felipe's come obviously four years. Robin McBride's coming from Wales, working with with Gats for fourteen years. Um, you've got Sean O'Brien's just come back from London Irish. Uh, now you've got Andrew Goodman from the Crusaders, um, plus myself and Leo, etc. So um, someone like Andrew Goodman, um, um, he'd be responsible a lot for designing those plays, um, along with Robin. So obviously the line-out delivery, etc., um, etc. Et um, I would 
my sort of um, influence would be um, on where I think we can um, exploit a team because of their defensive setup, mm-hmm. um, and they would come up generally with the detail and the plays that's a, an evolution of what we have in our existing menu at, at Leinster. Now that menu at Leinster's goes way back to the Joe Schmidt and the Michael Checker era. So you've got this you've got this real library of uh, plays and things that can be used from the master himself in Joe uh, that's evolved through Matt O'Connor into um, Gervin Dempsey, into Felipe Contepomi, into, into now Andrew Goodman. Um, and obviously Robin's got his view as well. So so we look, we look obviously to score. Um, the philosophy would be to score and whether that's around the front of a line-out or on the tail of a line-out, whether it's to play two phases and get them on an edge, whether to play an 11 player, um, so hit the middle and come back. Uh, to attack around the rook, um, and or secondly, to put us in good shape across the field so we can build then our unstructured attack on the back of the strike play. Um, so my my sort of remit within Leinster is to develop that that part of our game. You know the multi-phase attack, the unstructured attack. So we look cohesive. We can use our width and our depth and our timing and our running lines to to challenge defenses. To create one on one, so we can put, you know, a Robbie Henshaw on a one on one, or a Jack Kernan on a one on one, or a Kieran Doris on a one on one. It's a lot of moving parts. Can we, can we focus on England for a second? And what it seems that they're kind of trying to get those moving parts working together as, as best they can. What has been your view on what they've been trying to impart? Yeah, no, you can see it. You can certainly see see what they're trying to achieve um, with. Um, uh, with the particularly the um, Australia tour, mm. um, <laughs> the um, the challenge internationally with England um, is the cohesion piece. So yeah. it, it's 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 you know with with Ireland you know there's a lot of the players play for Ireland play for Leinster. So there's there's a natural evolution into Ireland. Um, there's a natural understanding of each other's running lines and. Um, the ability to do that at pace, and the the reason I think that um, it's done well is both Ireland and and Leinster. We we train at pace, but we train with pace and accuracy. Mm. Um, and when you're with England, you know we've got players coming from twelve different clubs. You've got maybe changes in personnel in terms of coaches. You've got different philosophies emerging. Um, you've got different combinations working together. I think it's just harder to achieve. I, felt, I certainly found that in in my time. Um, but over a period of time, with consistency of selection, philosophy, training habits, then it can become unconscious and it can become, you know, um, automatic. Mm. And I think it doesn't quite look like that at the moment. No. Um, now you'd have to be the one who would um, give the reasons for that. Uh, but um, um, that's what it looks like. When, when one thing that is under particular scrutiny, this kind of autumn I guess and certainly over the last week has been the makeup of that midfield and that seems to be a classic example of taking three guys that don't play together and seeing if it will work have you had a take on that? Well I mean unless they pick you know all the players from Saracens all the players from Harlequins all the players from you know and obviously you've got you've got Andrew Hestes in, in, in the middle of the Harlequins you know, 10, 12, <laughs> yeah. 13 channel for example you know, you're always going to get that with England. You know, you're not going to get Johnny Sexton, Gary Ringrose, Robbie Henshaw, um, Hugo Keenan, Jim O'Brien coming in, who's played with those lads for the last six or seven years. How well did he go? Yeah, but, but you know, it's not a surprise because he's, no. he's, he's trained, you know, with them for, for years now, Jimmy. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's played for us in big European games. Um, he's versatile. Do you know what I mean? So it is... It is harder with England, you know, um, for that reason, um, uh, and that. But that's why the cohesion of selection and the cohesion of philosophy becomes all the more important in a team like England. I think. Um, mm. uh, unfortunately, sometimes as well, though, with the best will in the world, you want to go down a certain route and you want to pick a certain combination. You want to play them together for the ten internationals that are available for the for the whole for the calendar year. And then one of them gets injured, or someone too, you know, like George Ford's injured at the moment. Mano was injured, you know, a fair bit at the time. Um, Max Smith's come in. Owen's now at twelve. Mano's back. Slade's been injured for a while. 
you know, so it is a bit of a moving feast sometimes. Um, uh, but we have a moving feast at Leinster, you know, so we have an ever-changing team, but because of the way we train, we, um, we involve all the players and all the players are, are used to playing and um, within our framework and in interchangeable positions um, within training. Um, and I do think that stands to us because we always, um, we rarely put the same team out. But yet in, in the competitions, we're usually pretty successful because of the way in which we train. And that stands to us, I think, um, uh, over the course of a 12-month period. I think you've answered this question before, but the answer might have changed as as maybe the years have gone past. What Clearly, there's a group of you that were involved in the 2015 experience with England um, and there's a group of you that are continuing to progress and achieve now in different roles. Um, what lesson from that tournament is most valuable to you and, and your coaching, do you feel? Uh, well, there's lots. There's, lot, there's lots. there's lots of lessons I've taken from, from coaching England. You know, I started 10 years ago, actually, um, and had 50-odd games in charge. Um, so every game was every game um, against top quality opposition. Every time you pull in a camp together, every time you're running training sessions, um, you're learning. You know, we won more than we lost. Um, we didn't win the critical game, obviously that mattered. Um, but we we put in some pretty good performances as well. Um, and uh, so there's so much personally I would take. I mean, if you were to wrap it into one thing, and I've probably given the same answer I was given before. You know, when I finished with England, I had to go away and think about what I really wanted to do next. And what I wanted to do was to coach, to coach more and to coach more on a consistent basis. And that's why the the opportunity at Leinster and the lure of of club coaching is so strong for me because I actually genuinely love the art of coaching. If I can keep you you on the international game for a second, the the trends, please, that you expect, as specific as you want to be, um, from this autumn and going ahead to the World Cup, if it's fair to say that the last World Cup was probably defined by <coughs> kick pressure, um, what are we going to see in in the autumn and in the in the lead up to twenty twenty three? In terms of trends, what am I seeing? Um, I'd say it's getting harder and harder to score tries, multi phase tries. Um, uh, defenses have become better and better organised. Defenses. And certain defences, particularly as we found in Europe, will go double jackal at the breakdown. So they'll push the boundaries with the referee and they'll, they'll, they'll ask the question consistently to the referee, if you don't penalise me here, then I'm just going to keep going hard on the ball. And it becomes very, very hard to get multi-phase rugby because, you know, there's always the threat of a turnover. But, you know, are those actions legal? Is the tackler out the back of the tackle? Is the assist tackler legal? Um they're the things I think need to be the top priorities for the referees because if we want a game where people are excited about coming to watch and you know you've got lots of multi-phase rugby in in France in you know 2023, um, that area of the game needs to be policed really well. You know the offside line, um, making sure the the um, the tacklers out the back of the tackle, the assist tackler a jackler is legal um, and shows clear release. And if that happens, then um, you'll get quick ball and you'll create opportunities. If it's allowed to drift into more leaning towards a defensive team, um, then the kicking game is going to become more and more prevalent. Um, and you know, people are saying, like, why is English Premiership seeing such big score lines? Why is the rugby so exciting? I think the English referees are refereeing in this area well, personally. Um, and as a consequence... Um, I think you get in multi-phase rugby, which means defences are finding it hard um, to to get set and, and, and reset under pressure, and and good attacks are winning over over good defences. Um, so I'm hoping that's the way it's going to go. Um, but I do think even just watching the first block of international games this weekend, um, I saw um, like shooting defenders coming at um, coming at uh, pods of three forwards to put pressure. On um, some teams went fourteen-one early, um, so there's space in the backfield. I think defence coaches, particularly in teams that maybe aren't expected to win, will push the boundaries in this area. Um, so it's up to the attack coaches to stay one step ahead. 
Um, now, New Zealand beat Wales a particular way at the weekend, generally playing off nine, working them around the corner, narrowing them up defensively and then beating them on the edges or just beating them through the middle, really. But um, um, Fiji tried a different way against Scotland and obviously um, Ireland, South Africa was a proper ding-dong, really, with Ireland trying to break down an unbelievably aggressive up and in defence um, from South Africa. So that's the beauty of the sport is that there's so many different ways in which you can defend and ways in which you can attack. It's about finding the right strategy for your team to suit your skill set. Fascinating. Stuart, appreciate your time. Thanks so much. No problem. Right, let's recap the rest of the international action on a very, very busy weekend. Um, Charles, you've been in France this weekend. I like that we have a recurring segment where Charles Richardson reviews hotels. Um, <laughs> Edinburgh, you were not thrilled with Paris. No. I've got this idea of you on a, on a balcony with a little espresso, that lovely light show at the Eiffel Tower going on. Was that what it was like? No, it wasn't quite like that, oh, but it was okay. it was an improvement on um, on Edinburgh, I must say. Um, no, I, I had a lovely time over there, but but fleeting. Whistle stop because I came back early yesterday morning along with Paul Grayson. Paul Grayson was there at the Stade de France on, um, on Saturday night and he was straight to Twickenham on Sunday. I unfortunately... Uh, <laughs> Tybings didn't quite line up, so I had to come to Telegraph Towers and, and, and cover the England game from here. But um, yeah, it was a fleeting visit to Paris, but an enjoyable one nonetheless. The game looked spectacular, both in terms of, uh, I mean, they know how to put on a show. I think we're oh, going to have do. a great World Cup, aren't we? I mean, oh, there's, yeah. there's going to be no shortage of fireworks no. and, and great spectacle. But the game itself was also a cracker. T- tell, tell us through that. What did you make of France? They're a little bit rusty, maybe? They were rusty, yeah. I mean, that's that's a French team who haven't played together since since they won the Grand Slam at the, at the Stade de France against England um, back in March because they went on tour to Japan and, and, and Fabian Galti rotated and, and rested a lot of players. Um, but, but they were rusty. But, you know, the, the, there's this thing, isn't there, about the best teams always find a way to win and, and, and a mark of a good side is, is winning even when they're, they're not playing so well. And, and France did that quite spectacularly with a, with a phenomenal Damien Penault um, solo try at the end. If you haven't uh, managed to catch highlights of that yet, I, I would very much recommend. But, but Australia as well um, also scored what might turn out to be the try of the autumn uh, in the first half with um, Lalakai Fichetti um, streaking 40 metres away from Roman Antamak after a 95-metre counter. And it was, it, was, it was a dramatic, it was an entertaining game, but the, the, the standard struggled a little bit, I thought. But France will get better. Well, they'll need to be because on Saturday they've got the Springboks in Marseille, so they will have to be. I think it was Morgs on our WhatsApp group who said, I didn't know Tom Wright was that quick. Was, that, was that you? Absolutely burned um, Pano, yeah, didn't Pano, he? And then, yeah. and then kind of got, you know, Pano got his revenge, kind of getting... I wonder whether that kind of puts a little bit of a different slant. If if Australia had, if Australia had held on to that win, that would have. We know how tight the kind of test scene is at the minute, and that mm. would have been an f- amazing result. Is, I mean, France have won that thirty twenty nine. England have lost twenty nine thirty. I'm just I'm just purely thinking of narrative my head. city yeah. like swings. Yeah. And France, we seem quite forgiving. England, we're, we're saying, what's going on? France, we forgive everything, don't they? We forgive how yeah. much they kick because yeah. they're just the sexy offloading. So, well, I mean, it was the first time I've seen Dupont have a poor game as well. I mean, it, I mean, he wasn't objectively poor, but he was he was right in the his, thick of the counter yeah. up for Marchand's oh, yeah. try, oh, wasn't yeah, big he? Yeah. Time. But but by his standards, yeah. I would say he was he had one of his poorer games certainly at international level. But he, yeah, I wouldn't quite go as far as to describe it. You wouldn't hook him, would poor. you? Yeah. No, 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 concerning. No. For everyone else that he's got that out of the way now <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's, yeah. Now, he's now going to be great and, and concerning for everyone else that if, if that is as bad as France are going to get now with 12 months away from their host World Cup then um, we, we're all doomed massively <laughs> we're all doomed okay <laughs> massively doomed <laughs> we're all massively doomed wow. well now living in fear um, let, let's jump to Dublin and talk about Ireland South Africa um, Charlie I know you've done an inside line on this today um, it sounded like an amazing atmosphere there World champions against the number one side in the world. A lot to enjoy, really. Yeah, we build it as two sort of kind of contrasting philosophies, didn't we? Sort of really South Africa, really direct, really set piece orientated, kick pressure, and then Ireland doing what Ireland are doing best at the minute, which is ball movement to space and trying to beat that blitz. So real and um, really compelling battles all around the field. Um, as it was, and as happens very often when you play in the spring box, as the Lions kind of showed a year ago, Ireland, I thought, got maybe got sucked into a bit of a kind of direct, kind of it's certainly direct in phase play, but they 
in those key battles and battles that they and Leinster have lost previously against robust kind of hefty sides I thought they did really well it was a really big mall turnover 58th minute I think with James Ryan coming to the fore really big moment that kind of epitomised it all and in 10 minutes after half time they scored those two tries got lucky with a cut with three calls maybe the scrum call and two and two, a forward pass and Sheen's kick through the ruck which has, has anyone spoken about that I'm publicly? not sure I'm not sure might have been a bit of fuss on social media anyone part seen of the it. Springboks management had a word about I'm that not sure let's move on okay no, Razi Erasmus has mentioned it has someone, mentioned it but yeah. someone, someone, someone they clearly haven't come to terms with the fact that in every single game of professional rugby ever made the referees made a mistake and they clearly that's news to them after last weekend it seems yeah but Ireland prevailing really interesting I, I, you know it's up for debate how much um, these games matter in a World Cup context because we've got a year to go because the game isn't going to be in Dublin for loads of reasons South Africa are hopefully going to have a place kicker on the field um, yeah. so, Is that the referee's fault as well? I think so yeah. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> but, you know, re- but really interesting and really heartening I think that Ireland can be sharper with what they're doing in phase play. We've seen them be sharper, and yet they still manage to come through. Should just talk about Cheslin Colby's selection at, at fullback. I found that quite interesting because I thought the idea would be that there's a, a fairly accurate theory that Safka are just so over-reliant on Vili LaRue in their attacking game because of what he does as a, a, another first receiver or second receiver option. And I sort of got excited about the idea of Colby doing that because I was like, ah, okay, you've got a player who's got a good passing game there who can probably fulfil a same, similar role. But he's also got outrageous pace and will be able to sort of catch, you know, forwards flat-footed on an outside break and try and open up the, the Irish defence more or any defence more. I just don't feel like we, we got that at all. It felt like tactically they were sort of thinking, right, you need to kick everything and sort of be that kind of fullback. It, it didn't seem very natural. Played it to uh, 10 for Toulouse, hasn't he, mm. Colby? So, mm-hmm. You're right. In that 10 minutes I was talking about just after half-time twice, um, Ireland resisted South Africa's phase play. South Africa didn't get any momentum Colby went to first receiver and went to the air. It felt so jarring. Yeah. It felt so jarring because, yeah, as you say, I think South Africa's best second receiver on the day was Eben Ibn Etzebeth, wasn't he? Yeah. Sweeping oh, around for that. For that. So nice. Just ridiculous. And, and yeah, I tweeted at the time, but was watching it and just swore spontaneously because having done everything that he'd done in that game, growing into the game as he does Etzebeth, albeit on the le- losing side, to do that as well. What a freak. You're what always doing that, just randomly swearing. <laughs> yeah. Very, yeah, yeah, very blue air at Twickenham yesterday. It was, yeah, lots of that. Um, let's move on blue to Cardiff. <laughs> let's move on to Cardiff, where New Zealand were just uh, just great. I, I, was, I was really, really impressed with how they have, since Jason Ryan came in as the new forwards coach, replacing John Plumtree, which was sort of, looking back on it, John, John Plumtree and... And Brad Moore went out, didn't they? And Joe Schmidt and Jason Ryan came in and, it, and Foster kept his job. And it was sort of like, OK, if you can't start winning like this with two new coaches, then you really are in big trouble. But the, the way their pack carried and the precision of their carries and the quick ball that they got and the recycling speed at rut time, I wish I'd looked it up before I started talking about this because I should have done. They were just phenomenal. I was so, so impressed by it. And they just blew Wales away. Wales produced an astonishing number of tackles. I think... I think Talupe Falatau had 28 and Justin Tipperick had 25. So between the two of them, you're looking at over 50 tackles and, and they and they were brilliant, but it just didn't matter because yeah. they would just recycle and another whopping carrier would come in, whether it was Surveyor or Cody Taylor or or um, Shannon Frizzell at Blindside and, and they were just absolutely flattened Wales. It, I, I haven't seen a beat down like that in that sense in such a long time it's really interesting they did everything that they didn't do against Japan they were just direct mm. and, and and it's been really interesting that that has been kind of Schmidt's imprint on the side just being that direct I looked up a term um, an NFL term because I thought I'd get it wrong and I really wanted to get it right smash mouth offence nice yeah, yeah. 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 having yeah. that get your big running backs and your full backs yeah, rumbling that's, what, just, that's, what yeah. Schmidt, that's what Schmidt's doing it's really direct um, obviously they've got the capacity to offload and play those little tips and, and shift the point of contact which is what they do so well naturally but having that bedrock as you say what a thing to go back to not bad having a, a 6 foot 5 guy inside centre now as well in Geordie Barrett which, which almost makes you think why didn't they try this before? Yeah. Because he, he's getting them over the gain line. You can still use him in those cross situations like they did for his try where, where poor, poor Rio Dyer was, was never going to... I think no. Rio Dyer's under six foot and Barrett's six foot five and that, that mismatch in the air was just yeah. was just never going to work out. 
there was just so much like Ali Severe played out of his mind as he has done for a lot of the year and and Charles I know this is sacrilege but he might be pushing Dupont quite hard no no I agree player of the year. especially if Dupont carries on like he did last week yeah I mean I mean he really was quite astonishing Aaron Smith had a couple of tries uh, there was there was just a lot to like about this and they didn't necessarily Caleb Clark and Severin Reese on the wings for New Zealand didn't actually see like loads of ball because they didn't need to mm. because Wales, because Wales were just suffering from wave after wave after route one ball carries and it was yeah it was it was really it's impressive a, it's an ingenious solution as well to get Moanga and the two Barretts as in the two backs Barretts in the same team as well, well that's I, been I the think, dilemma hasn't yeah. it like how do you how right. do you sort of have Moanga and Barrett on the field but also have Geordie on there for his like security under the eyeball but mm. just have all three mm. like why not we're talking about deceptively big uh, players Dalton Papali is a big lad yeah Brushed I mean, off, brushed yeah, off to brick. Very yeah. easy to spot now with that bleach, yeah. bleach blonde lid as well. Slightly high tackle well. early on. Mm. Oh, we'll let him off on the chop in the chops. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, he was brilliant after that. I think they'd have won with thirteen players. <laughs> to be honest, <laughs> the way. Yeah, what, and what does it say about Wales though? Uh, yeah, yeah, unsure. Uh, this game against New Zealand has always been a problem for them, as we know. What's the, what's the year count now? Is it sixty-three? Uh, it might be more than that. It might be sixty-eight years. Huge game coming up. It's been a while. Um, since they beat New Zealand and it, and I, th- I thought what was interesting was that last year in that Wales-New Zealand game that was just outside the test window they, they got hammered as well but it was sort of like well we didn't have you know, full compliment this time uh, just yeah just absolutely blown off the part I've seen a few comments saying they need more physicality I know they would love to have Christ Chinzer as like a starting blindside ready to go for the World Cup but time is a bit short even if even though he's very good yeah there's a lot of questions there um it wasn't pretty, despite the, despite really noble efforts, noble efforts from Falatau, from Tipperick, and from Nick Tompkins, as we as mm. we said earlier. I thought I thought he was really good. Um, let's go to Scotland, where there has been sort of breaking news because Finn Russell has been called up by Scotland. He's replaced Adam Hastings, who um, I shouldn't laugh got absolutely clobbered by the Fijian second row on his debut, Ratu Ratui Solia. Wow, nailed it first time. Who just had an incredible debut because he was yellow carded about 80 seconds into the game, came back on and he scored a try, and then had this astonishing tackle on Hastings, which basically, like Hastings was, it was perfectly legal. Hastings was just out of the game after that. You know, it's, you know, it's bad where the news, um, the news coverage after the game is saying that, that, that Hastings has suffered whiplash. Yeah. You know, that, I think that says it all. That's fairly rare. I mean, like, that's we, a car crash, isn't we, it? We don't get that very often. It was, it was just a very, very interesting debut for the, for the Fiji lot. But hey, Finn is back, and, there, and there's been so much talk about whether it can sort of work with Finn fitting into what they have planned Scotland what do you think good exciting always exciting I mean it's the, the, we're the winners aren't we we get to watch it because he's just he's just box office and how he goes about we took, we spoke earlier on with Ireland about challenging that that is the pinch point I think in, in test rugby is how how much variety you have off nine and, and narrow and how well you beat that blitz on the on the 30, uh, 13 and get and get your um, back three away into the 15 metre channels Finn Russell's peerless at doing that whether it's kick passing whether it's fizzing the ball from second receiver or first receiver he's fantastic can't wait to watch him again Charles just quickly do you think Scotland will give the All Blacks a, a bit of a tougher test than Wales? No <laughs> in, a word, in a word I mean I think Russell, Russell cool. coming back, Russell coming back is is a bonus for them. But I mean, he's been built up as this sort of messianic character that he's coming back and he's going to save the day and he's going to spearhead this great Scottish he's victory been, over New Zealand. He's been playing well for Racing. Right? He, no, he's he's been playing very he's been playing very well for Racing. But he's only been playing very well for Racing in the same way that Finn Russell always plays very well for Racing. Mm. You know, there's lots of bells and whistles, and he's he's very skillful. Um, and there's and he's got bucket loads of talent, and there's no denying that. But is he going to just drop in five? Six days before a test against the All Blacks and 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 mastermind a victory, make a good movie. It would ma- it would make a it make make a damn good movie. But I, I mean, the, the Scottish media have been you know in, incessant and and losing their minds over the fact that Russell hasn't been picked for these uh, for, it, the, for these tests. Well, that, now yeah. you've got your wish. You've it's got your wish, clear. guys. So we'll see. Been we'll clear see, they want him back, hasn't it? Um, uh, let's wrap up this section by looking ahead to England against Japan. I know we've spoken about what changes we'd make. I just want to get an idea of what to expect from Japan. Obviously, pushed New Zealand close in... in uh, I can't remember where they were playing in Japan a couple of weeks ago. And they've now had a week off. The coming Jamie Joseph will be very excited about this matchup. What, do, what are we sort of expecting from Japan this weekend? 
I was just checking the long-range uh, weather forecast. Looks dry mm. for Twickenham well, on say, Saturday, yeah. which is Worrying. a treat. Um, because <laughs> yeah. we'll get to see, hopefully, that fast-paced, intricate phase play that's been Japan's hallmark against against New Zealand. They actually, I think we kind of touched on it last week, they, they pushed a few offloads that maybe in, in a kind of higher stakes game they wouldn't have done. Just And that suggests to me that they're trying to push boundaries, which, when you're working from a pretty handy base is, is really interesting what we'll see them do to England is challenge, challenge them laterally which was the kind of basis for Argentina's gorgeous um, first phase try Petranu's no, mm. pass to Moroni mm. is so mm. wide across the across the England 22 that Knowles involved you know you're getting your wing involved off, off that first first pass and then Carrera's coming around that's the kind of Carrera's had a few wobbly moments suddenly under the high yeah. ball doing conventional fly half things but when you've got a speed, a fly half of that speed, unconventionally in an unconventional position. That's what completely, um, you know, capitalised on how narrow and how for them. and how and how slow England were, uh, kind of readjusting after that. Mm. They'll have to readjust a hell of a lot against Japan, and that's good. I hope Nagare plays at, at nine because just one of my favourite, absolute favourite players to watch. Just the speed with which he's, um, if he's allowed. So the three, four, five rucks that are that are remotely quick. So um, yeah, it's going to be fascinating to see how because England, you know, you get you you so often have the concentrating ourselves, concentrating ourselves rhetoric, don't you, with with international sides? But if they don't get that selection right, it's going to be really ugly. And with and with Argentina's first drive, as we've mentioned, mirroring or certainly echoes of that that fantastic France try that they scored in the twenty twenty. One Six Nations behind closed doors where Penno scored and Jalibert wrapped round. There's, you know, Japan are going to be looking at those two and they're surely going to be on the training ground all week hammering first phase strike plays, especially with the kind of inventive game that they want to play, you know, and, and really looking at that outside centre channel. And you'd expect that Noel would definitely be playing again and, and, and probably Manu too, and how they can look at sort of piercing mm. and all going round mm. that, 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 that sort of unit. High, t- high tempo. Lots of fireworks. Ooh, mm-hmm. Sounds actually quite ominous, to be honest. Right, that's it for today. Thanks to everyone who has downloaded this episode. A reminder that we will be here throughout the autumn, bringing you the latest from the England camp and the rest of this month's action. We'll also be exploring a different theme each week. If you missed last week's episode with Eddie Jones on the art of selection, it's available now on the Telegraph Rugby Podcast channel. Our theme next week is all about officiating. And we will be speaking with the one and only Nigel Owens. So if you have any questions ahead of that one, you can get in touch with us at rugbypod at telegraph.co.uk. In the meantime, if you haven't already subscribed to the podcast, please do. You can do that now on any platform, wherever you are in the world. Myself, Charles and Charlie will be back with you next week. Until then, goodbye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.